Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And this is your SCOTUS, um, well, what is it? Well, uh, there are no more arguments this term to preview, so it's not a sneak peek. And it's really not a deep dive. Whatever this is, we're recording it on Thursday, May 28th. We're still sort of in this in-between time in the term where the arguments are over and we're mostly just waiting for the opinions to come down before the court takes off for the summer. Of course, because of the pandemic and the special May argument session, we don't know if that winds up pushing the justices to stick around past their usual end of June deadline for issuing the last opinions of the term, but we'll see. Yeah, we're going to talk about the court schedule a bit with our guest, legendary Supreme Court reporter Lyle Denniston, who's going to call in from his home in Maryland. He allegedly retired (laughs) after covering the court for more than half a century. But first, let's catch up on what the court's been up to. Well, uh, not much, really, Jordan, at least not publicly. Um, The justices didn't issue any opinions this past week. And only one the week before that in that Sudan terror case. Right. And so that brought the number of opinions in argued cases up to 32, meaning that the justices have about two dozen more opinions to go, including some in the most consequential cases of the term. So that number of decisions that's left, is that normal for this point in the term? Or is that another effect of the pandemic or some other backup? Well, it really depends on how you look at it, Jordan, because the court lost a whole argument sitting and all of the cases in it. So Going into the first week of June last term, the justices still had about 30 opinions left. So by that metric, they're doing better. Um, But they also had issued 38 opinions by this time, as opposed to 32, suggesting that the coronavirus could be slowing them down. Let's remind our listeners of some of those remaining cases that we're still waiting for. Uh, We're waiting on the trio of cases asking if federal anti-discrimination laws protect LGBT workers. That was argued way back in October. And one of the plaintiffs in that case, Amy Stevens, didn't get to see the outcome in her case. The court this week formally replaced her with her trustee as the party in the Supreme Court case after she died at the age of 59. Sad news. And You know, Kimberly, it's not the only death we've had this term of someone with a pending Supreme Court case. Remember back in January, Justin Walker, the criminal defendant in the latest Armed Career Criminal Act case, died and the court dismissed his case. But turning back to these LGBT discrimination cases, they kind of always seem destined for an end of June decision, right? Just given how tough the issues are. Right. They, the justices really str- seem to struggle with that one. So um, no surprise that it's taking them a long time. And another case that the justices struggled with are the DACA cases argued way back in November. This is asking whether the Trump administration can wind down the Obama era program that defers deportation for individuals brought to the country when they were young. Those are so-called dreamers. And, and since that DACA case was argued, there was a bit of an update that could be affecting the decision. One of the arguments that DACA supporters raised is that the Trump administration didn't adequately weigh the reliance on the DACA program. Right. And they filed a new letter saying that the COVID crisis brings that into focus. They note that 27,000 Dreamers work in the healthcare industry, and many of them are on the front lines of the fight against the coronavirus. 
We're also waiting for a decision in the June medical abortion case. That was the last case argued in person at the Supreme Court back in March. That's the one involving a Louisiana law that's similar, some say exactly the same, as a Texas law that was struck down in 2016 that requires abortion doctors to get admitting privileges at local hospitals. And of course, we're still awaiting decisions in the Trump subpoena cases, but those were argued in May, so it's not likely that we're going to see them anytime soon. Kimberly, we got a few CVSG briefs from the U.S. Solicitor General's office, which could give us some clues about some of the next cases that the court's going to take up for next term. Can you give us a refresher on what this all means? Sure. So periodically throughout the term, the justices will call for the views of the Solicitor General, hence a CVSG, on whether to take up a particular case. The justices often, but certainly not always, follow the SG's recommendation. And these things don't have specific deadlines, but they do tend to follow certain norms, right? So the SG's office tries to file them either by late May to allow the court enough time to put new cases on its calendar for next term, and then again in December to allow the court to add cases to their current term. And we got two new grant recommendations from the SG on Tuesday, May 26. The first is in a Torture Victims Protection Act case. Tell us a little bit about this one, Jordan. Sure. So this case is brought by an American citizen and security contractor, Daryl Lewis. He was arrested in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for illegally working as a foreign mercenary. He alleges that he was tortured there for over a six-week period, and he sued high-ranking officials there under the Torture Victim Protection Act. So the trial court initially dismissed the case, finding that the officials were entitled to immunity. Right, but then the D.C. Circuit vacated that immunity ruling, prompting the officials to appeal to the Supreme Court. And so the United States actually is not only suggesting that the justices take this case, but they are actually coming down on the side of the foreign officials, right? The federal government wants the Supreme Court to take the case, right? So the government is worried that if the D.C. Circuit's ruling stands, then that could open up the U.S. to lawsuits challenging various foreign military or policy decisions, which the government says could seriously interfere with the executive branch's conduct of foreign relations. And so we had another CVSG brief with a similar sort of theme. Right, Kimberly? Yes. So this case involves the alien tort statute, which close court watchers may recall always brings up lots of talks of pirates at the Supreme Court. Uh, Why is that again? Uh, uh, It's not totally obvious to you, Jordan. I I must be missing something. (laughs) So the ATS dates back to the 1700s and gives U.S. courts jurisdiction over torts alleging, quote, violations of international law. So some of the earliest cases involved harassment of foreign ambassadors. And pirates? Uh, Yes, pirates. Pirates, because they typically involve misconduct on the lawless high seas. So the ATS gave um, Supreme Court jurisdiction over pirates. Okay, I got it. But we're not dealing with pirates here, right? Instead, we're talking about former child slaves who said they were kidnapped and forced to work in cocoa fields. Well, that's right. And they're suing U.S. companies that actually use the cocoa beans instead of the foreign groups that actually perpetrated the abuses. And that's because the Supreme Court has pulled back on what it sees as groups really trying to expand the reach of the ATS to address human rights 
abuses abroad. So in recent terms, they've actually said that the ATS can't be used against foreign corporations. So in this second CVSG brief that we're talking about here, the Solicitor General recommends that the justices take this case. That's right. And again, they point to the consequences for U.S. entities that act abroad if the U.S. allows this, uh, these kinds of suits to go forward in federal courts. All right. So we got two cases that have a better than average chance of getting on the docket for next term. We'll keep you listeners updated on what happens with those. Right. Again, we should hear about those before the end of the term. Um, but as for now, we have a, a few new COVID-related motions at the Supreme Court, right, Jordan? That's right. Over dissent from Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, the court refused to disturb a lower court ruling that would have required the Bureau of Prisons to transfer some elderly and high-risk prisoners out of an Ohio prison where inmates have died from COVID-19. So this was an emergency request by the Solicitor General, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So it looks like this is a rare loss for the Trump administration in one of these requests. Well, yeah, right. But the court's order notes that it was ruling in sort of an intermediate posture in this case, and it explicitly left open the possibility of the government winning in the end. So we'll see if this winds up as yet another Trump administration emergency appeal win at the Supreme Court. Well, another issue that we've talked about on this podcast is restrictions on religious services during the COVID crisis. And as we're recording this, there are two outstanding motions challenging reopening plans in both California and Illinois that religious groups say unreasonably restrict in-person religious services. And responses are due in both of those cases on the day that we're recording, May 28th. So there could be some action pretty soon from the court on these. Okay, Jordan, now that everybody's up to date on the latest SCOTUS news, let's bring on our guest for this week. Let's do it. I'm excited for this one. Lyle Denniston has covered the Supreme Court for six decades. He's covered a quarter of all of the justices to ever sit on the court, and he's reported on the entire careers on the bench of 10 justices. And that's why we in the Supreme Court press room know him as the dean of the Supreme Court press court. Thanks so much for joining us, Lyle. I'm delighted to be with you. Um, I have uh, missed being in the press room for the last uh, year or so, um, but i uh, um, I, I know Kimberly very well, and I'm looking forward to having a chance to, to meet uh, to Jordan. Thanks, Lyle. So you've been keeping a close eye on the court for some time. Can you put into perspective this pandemic era and the adjustments that the court has made during it? Do you think that we'll look back on this time as really significant in the court's history? Well, I, th- I think um, my dominant impression is simply... Uh, that the court has had to make temporary arrangements in order to be able to function uh, while the uh, virus uh, crisis, the public health crisis, has gone on. So I don't see any long-term um, impact on the court's work. I don't. I don't think that the court will grant more cases. Um, I think they'd rather like having uh, only um, hearings in the morning three days a week most of the time. I think they like um, the caseload of about 70 decisions a term, and uh, that, of course, is going to be down to somewhere in the 50s this term because of the postponement of some cases that couldn't be heard uh, in the springtime. But I don't see any long-term changes, and uh, as I have somewhat notoriously uh, been um, recorded as saying in public, um, I don't think that the experiment in um, the uh, 
public live broadcasting of their hearings is going to lead them to change their ways in regard to uh, live broadcast of their hearings in the future. Well, let's chat about those um, historic May arguments um, in which they not only heard arguments over the phone, but allowed them to be live streamed to the public for the first time. Um, You said you didn't think that it was going to change the way that the court did things, so no more live streaming in the future. Why is that? Well, first of all, I think... uh, the, the court understands that live streaming is is more than anything else going to be visual rather than audio. Um, I don't think um, the audio experience um, provides the kind of um, visual exposure of the court uh, about which many of the justices, if not most of them, are concerned. Um, I think the the abiding feeling among a majority of the court. Uh, as it has been for a long time, is that a a visual depiction of the court at its work is going to be a a spectacle rather than a a matter of public education. Um, Because I don't think that, given the complexity of many of the cases, that the court is going to have a very sophisticated following. And I think that they expect the court will be viewed by the public as simply another kind of show, um, and the public really won't learn a whole lot about how the court operates. And I don't know that any of the justices are terribly concerned about themselves or the lawyers uh, 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 acting up before the cameras. I don't think they worry about that, but I do think they worry about the overall spectacle of a really quiet and deliberative uh, process, uh, or at least it's intended to be, uh, becoming um, such um, uh, a um, notoriously visible thing. So, Lyle, following up on that, whenever we talk about whether the court's going to make any advancements in streaming the arguments in any way, it seems like we're always talking about this from the perspective of the justices and what they're comfortable with and what they'll allow the public to see. But do you really think that that's the way to look at it? I mean, we've seen a lot of people take interest in these C-SPAN live stream arguments. Why isn't it that something that should just be up to the people rather than just the nine justices themselves? Well, um, Jordan, I know you'll forgive me for giving a response that sounds like a lawyer rather than a journalist, but there, there is no way by which the public can exert uh, the kind of pressure that would be needed to change the court's mind. Um, the, the public obviously has an interest in what the court does. They have a keen interest in it, and they're entitled to have that interest. But ultimately, the question becomes, what kind of pressure would work uh, from the public to get the court to change its ways. Um, and I, I genuinely believe that an attempt by the uh, Congress to compel them to be uh, uh, televising their programs is an unconstitutional violation of the doctrine of separation of powers. I, uh, I, I, the Senate doesn't want the Supreme Court dictating when and how uh, they hold uh, uh, public visuals of what they do. So I rather suspect that the uh, the court's not going to pay a whole lot of attention. And I think 
the Chief Justice at one point has raised the specter of a constitutional intrusion if Congress seeks to do it. So what I'm saying is that as a practical matter, however much the public has a keen interest in what the court does, there is simply no way, um, no effective way that I can uh, perceive by which the public can put pressure on the court uh, to see the value of civic education. Um, you know, it's taken taken for it's taken a very long time for the court uh, to even identify on the transcripts who was asking the questions during the hearings. Uh, that only changed in modern times. Uh, it took a long time for the court to uh, give uh, anybody a same-day release of the transcripts of their hearings, and uh, you still don't get immediate uh, release of the transcripts. You get them uh, uh, after an hour or two or more. Um, so um, the, the court changes its ways so slowly um, that um, I think it's probably going to have to be uh, a matter that has changed from within. I think the, the attitudes of the justices over time, if we continue to develop more and more as a visual kind of people, that maybe the attitudes of the court will change. But I think it's going to take quite a while. Hmm. Well, changing gears just a little bit, um, we Jordan and I chatted about a few of the cases that we're still waiting on from this term. But I wonder if there are any cases in particular that you're watching out for. Well, uh, you know, you can you can easily pick out the big ones, but one of the ones that I'm looking at as a really major sleeper case is one that I think uh, a lot of observers have thought would be fairly easy for the case, and that's the one involving whether states control how members of the Electoral College vote. The reason that that, that case fascinates me more than, uh, than the issue of state uh, control is how strongly the court is going to say that Article One of the Constitution and the Election Clause gives the state legislatures power over the, over the uh, electoral process, because that has implications not only for how the Electoral College votes, but uh, it also has implications now in the pandemic for whether or not the governors are able to impose emergency uh, settle-in-place cases um, and take that power away from legislatures over the control of congressional elections. Um, and depending, again, on how strongly the court interprets the legislature's power under election clauses, that can make a major difference in the future when the court is confronted with questions about the constitutionality of these new independent um, redistricting commissions, because uh, oh. um, Kimberly, you will remember uh, that when the court decided the Arizona case and upheld the power of the people of Arizona to hand the legislative redistricting process to an independent commission, Chief Justice Roberts wrote a very, very strong dissent saying that uh, the election clause means that the legislators really have the power and you can't take it away from them. So that when a lot of people are looking to 
um, these independent redistricting commissions to take partisanship out of the um, redistricting process. And I think what the court says in the Electoral College case is going to tell us a lot about the future of these other related issues. Maybe we can turn to something a little more important than the Supreme Court. Uh, Lyle, you apparently retired a few years ago. Um, what have you been up to? Well, um, I've, I've, throughout my later years, um, I tried three times to retire from the court. I actually <laughs> had two retirement parties um, before <laughs> I re- And when I finally did leave the court in June of 2018, uh, instead of having another going away party, my wife and I had a party to uh, celebrate the help that the uh, staff of the Supreme Court had given me over the years. So we threw a party for the staff instead of the other way around. But <laughs> I, I did actually try to keep up with the court through last December um, when I probably wrote my last piece for uh, for money um, when uh, I finished my career with the National Constitution Center's blog, um, which um, which I love doing, but it wasn't quite as challenging as working for uh, for a daily publication. Uh, um, so my my daily work really ended uh, at the end of um, December or at the end of June in 2018. But uh, my wife and I have since moved to a retirement community and. Uh, I, in a way, I haven't stopped working because uh, we have a little community um, uh, bulletin board, online bulletin board, and uh, in order to help the community understand what was going on in the Supreme Court during the audio live broadcast, uh, each day I wrote a piece and put it on our little online discussion group. Uh, explaining what the cases were about and with the significance of them. So it's obvious that I'm having a little trouble letting go. <laughs> wow, uh, those are some lucky residents um, to get your take on on the Supreme Court. Well, we really appreciate you joining us today, and um, thank you so much for taking your time to share your uh, insight with us. Well, I'm glad to do it, and good luck with your future podcasts. They are a very very useful way for people to keep up with the other dimensions of the court rather than just the breaking news. Um, Yeah, I've never wanted to enter a retirement community (laughs) so badly as I do now just to get Lyle's coverage. I know, right? He's probably scooping us even from in there. (laughs) That's, That's pretty likely. Well, Jordan, before we close out the episode, we've got a short update on the Tim's case from last term. That's right. This was the case about whether the Eighth Amendment's ban on excessive fines applies to the states. And at the heart of that one was Tyson Tim's, whose $42,000 SUV was seized in relation to a drug conviction that carried a maximum fine of $10,000. And we saw that a Tony Moore reported that Mr. Tim's finally got his Land Rover back. Wow. Congrats, um, I guess, on getting your 2012 Land Rover back in 2020. That's right. Happy trails to Mr. Timms. And so to close out the episode, we'll leave you with the remarks of Chief Justice John Roberts, who gave a remote commencement speech at his son's high school graduation. The year I graduated from high school, the mobile phone was invented. It weighed two and a half pounds and was a foot long. (laughs) I can't believe he's already uh, graduating high school. Do you remember when Chief Justice Roberts was um, announced as the nominee in 2005 and his little boy uh, in in the middle of uh, his speech with 
uh, President Bush was dancing around and <laughs> showing off and actually had to be escorted off by his mom. Where so. does the time go? <laughs> all right. Well, um, to keep up with all the latest uh, dancing and other news, uh, be sure to follow along at news.bloomberglaw.com. And take it away, Chief Justice Roberts. Now everything seems precarious. Go to Mars? We don't even know if we can go outside. Many of you don't know if you'll be able to go to campus in the fall. The pandemic has pierced our illusion of certainty and control. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.